Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, James. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. We are talking to James Allworth. I think you are now in San Francisco, right? Uh, Palo Alto, actually. Palo Alto, yes. Uh, in the Bay Area. I'm talking to James Allworth, and I've read his book, How I Will Measure Your Life, with Clayton Christensen and Karen Dillon, and who's also currently working as a director of strategy with a company called Medallia. And of course, if you are like me, who follows the Exponent podcast with him and his co-host Ben Thompson, I'm a fan too. So James, you started off as a strategy consultant and subsequently you end up doing a lot with business strategy that intersects with technology and innovation. How do you start your career actually? I started my career off after undergrad. So I did my undergrad studying two fields, technology and business. And these have both been long-standing interests of mine. And while I was there, the management consulting firms visited school and they gave this presentation about how you get to do lots of different high-level projects in lots of different industries, work work on difficult problems with teams, get to travel lots. And by the way, if you do a good job after a few years, we'll send you off to go do an MBA anywhere you want. And that sounded pretty appealing. So I jumped in there in the management consulting field and it was, as was promised, lots of very interesting projects across the Asia Pacific region. I got to live in Indonesia for six months and Thailand for a year, working on everything from strategy projects for telcos who were making a heap of money as a result of the explosion in mobile through to operational transformation projects with big retail banks. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great way of starting off a career. So in your one and a half years in Asia, how do you find Asia as a continent? How do you find it in terms of cultural, in, in terms of the way you handle clients or your experiences there? Yeah, it's obviously very different from a, a Western culture. Now, there's been a lot of infusion of Asian culture into Australia, so I'd had a little bit of exposure to it, but obviously nowhere near as much as it was picking up and moving to Indonesia or moving to Thailand. The question was broadly, how do you find Asian culture? And I, I think one of the things that I took away from my experience there is it's it's easy from the outside to look as at Asian culture as one thing, but really it's quite distinct depending on the different regions. Like Indonesia is a bit different to Thailand, it is different from from China or Japan. But I, I have to say that I love my time there. There's something about the energy of so many of the big cities in Asia. So I lived in Bangkok for a year and it's it's obviously a very, it feels very different from a place like Sydney or a place like San Francisco, but I became very familiar with it and grew to love many of the people that were there. Even though it does feel so different, I, I got to know it quite well and it feels like this home away from home in an entirely different culture. And that travel also helped you to broaden the perspective on things as well. After that, you went and do an MBA in Harvard Business School, right? Mm, I did. Yes. And then pre and post you have worked in Apple, Booz & Co, which is a consulting firm. I mean, how does it shape the way you think about things like business leadership and management itself? The MBA? Yeah, the MBA. And also the, your experiences with Apple and Booz? 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that they become such formative experiences. It fundamentally changes the way you think about these things and it actually becomes quite a difficult question to answer. Yeah, management consulting taught me a lot about pragmatism. Uh, of all things, like the need to deliver, uh, working on high-level problems and getting exposure to uh, a senior executive perspective at a relatively junior at a relatively junior level was was fantastic. the The Apple experience was great, just in terms of being exposed to a company that's at the top of its game and just having everybody focused on delivering the best, like the best possible experience. Like that was a fantastic experience, even though it was a relatively short period of time. And then business school, again, was fundamentally transformative. And I, 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 took, I took away a lot of things from business school that I didn't expect to learn. I didn't expect to become a better listener when I was at business school. I didn't expect to become more empathetic. They're, they're very valuable things, but these are some of the most important things that I took away from the MBA classroom. The case-based method is a big part of HBS and it really changed the way I interact with people. And I guess the one other thing that would be impossible not to mention is my time as a student and then as a colleague of Professor Clay Christensen's, whose research and his class like uh, just changed the way I think dramatically. There's so much solid research and theory that I have learned from Clay that just shapes how I view the world. And, and that really has played a big part in, I mean, it, it's seeped into all areas of my life, not just professional, but personal as well. Oftentimes, I hear you on the podcast talking about disruption theory with mm. Ben. So mm-hmm. I know you currently work with a company called Medalia. It's a core mm. bank and it's also a B2B technology company. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about what they do? Yeah, what, absolutely. What do, you, what do you do there as well? A little sure. Bit. So the company, the focus of the company is on helping organizations improve the quality of the customer experience they deliver. Now, that sounds very ephemeral, but to like ground it for you, let's say you walk into a store, let's say buy a, a high ticket priced item. And as, as a result, if, if, one of the, if one of the companies that you just bought that from works with Medallia, as an example, they'll send you a receipt. And at the bottom of the receipt, there will be a link saying, tell us what you think. You click that, it goes to us. You give feedback on the quality of your experience from how, like, it can be anything from traditional net promoter stuff, how likely are you to recommend this company to a friend or family or whatever the company's looking for. That feedback goes directly at the end of the day to the person who just helped you. So they can log in and they can log in and they can see all the feedback that they're getting from individual customers, what they're doing well, what they're not. That same feedback can trigger a real-time alert. Let's say you had a bad experience, a real-time alert for a manager to call you up and say, hey, that wasn't good enough. Come back, let us fix it for you. And then it rolls up to a more traditional market research point of view, which shows how various stores are performing. You can try innovations in different stores and almost A-B test. Like we we can provide a platform to do the equivalent of A-B testing in the physical world. I mean, another way, like that's that's a very, mm. this is bolts Applied, up. Yeah. So does it, this apply to say retail or also towards other kind of products? Oh, absolutely. It applies. It applies to every industry. I mean, are there industries out that you believe that are out there that do not uh, have the quality of the experience as a, a fundamental part 
of whether whether a customer is going to come back or whether a customer is going to choose you to do business with. And I, I would argue that with the exception of a few very select commodity-based businesses, everyone's in the customer experience industry. Everyone, whether it's B2C, hospitality, retail, or B2B, mm. everyone is in the business of delivering a great experience for their customer. And you see it, you see it in the disruptors that are starting to emerge right now. I mean, you compare Uber to a taxi, for example. Mm. Uh, fundamentally, these are the same things. They are a car, a driver, a passenger, or wanting to go somewhere. But when you get into an Uber, it feels like an entirely different experience. And the reason is, is because Uber, before you get the next ride, you have to rate the quality of the last ride that you had. And Uber manages its drivers to the quality of that experience. If you don't get above four and a half stars, they kick you off. You can't drive for Uber anymore. And so when a passenger gets in a car with an Uber, an Uber driver, the, the, the driver is really thinking not how much money can I make out of this passenger, but how can I deliver the best experience? Mm. Medallia does exactly that for big, complicated enterprises who, who either don't want to or aren't able to build that kind of system for themselves because it's really not easy. I know that because in my organization, we talk a lot about customer experience. And I think one of the metrics that we usually talk about is the net promoter score. Mm, so right. I guess in Medela's case, I, do, do they actually also help you to measure the net promoter score as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we will solicit feedback from customers on behalf of our customers. So we'll go out to your customers and we'll send, we'll go wherever they are. Like we can send it via email, we can send SMS, we can do voice, whatever mechanism works best. And we will ask all the questions in the net promoter system if that's, if that's the approach that you've decided to take. We are fundamentally a system in, in the same way that an ERP system tracks dollars and inventory, what we do is we track the customer experience. We bring that level of rigor and ability to share the data so everyone can log in and see and, and see relevant data from, say, a net promoter system. So again, when a frontline store associate logs into Medallia, they don't see how the store's performing they see how they're performing. They see the feedback from the customers that they help. It, it drives change inside an organization when people see that because in the same way the Uber driver is not just thinking about the dollars, they're thinking about the experience. When you bring that visibility, when you collect the data and bring that visibility to people, it changes the way they think about their jobs. I like the part about using data to basically learn more about customer insights. So mm. I guess talking about measuring I mean, it's something that I think you talk about as well in a book that you have written, mm. How I Measure Your Life. I think measuring and getting the right data quantifiable is very data-driven. Is something that I think you have sort of gone through in your, most of your roles. So I guess the book, How Will I Measure Your Life? I, as a reader, uh, when I read the book, was sometime around at the age of 36, 37, somewhere, somewhere mm. around there. And one of the things, um, I like to recommend books to people who intern for me. I always mm. look at, I read both books. Actually, interestingly, I was reading your book and also Reed Hoffman's The Startup of You at the same mm. time and realized that if I were to try to educate a 20-year-old, I'll pass them The Startup of You. But when it comes to somewhere between 30 to 40 where you're in a mid-career, How Will I Measure Your Life will be is a great book to have. So my, mm. my first question probably, I mean, the book is written with Clay Christensen and Karen Dillon. Mm -hmm. So how do you get involved in that project and what actually attracted to you to work on a book that actually focuses about applying business theories into life? 
Yeah, it's a great question. It wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened as these things sometimes do. So I had the good fortune of getting into Clay's class at HBS. It's one of the most popular classes at the school. And we got along really well. I like one of my ways of understanding things is to try and pull them apart, to look for anomalies. And uh, he very much appreciated that style. And because of who he is, he has a budget to ask students to stick around and work with him. And his pitch to me was nothing more than, hey, why don't you come work for me after you've graduated? I'm sure we'll find something fun to do. And that was really all he needed to say. I, I felt like this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I said yes. The book, it, it certainly wasn't part of the original plan. We were talking about doing something much more traditionally business-based. We were probably going to do something focused on marketing. And then one week after he started, I started rather, Clay had a stroke and Fortunately, he recovered fully subsequently, but it did in that period where he was recovering, it did give me a lot of time to reflect on how I wanted to use the year that I had to work with this incredible person. One of the things that I'd realized is that I was increasingly having conversations with people about what's next. Like you get towards the end of business school and you start to think about, okay, like what matters in life? Like how am I going to go and find a career that I really enjoy? And this is something that I found myself relying a lot upon the theories in Clay's class to do. And famously, his last class is all about taking the theories and asking these big questions in life. So on the last day, what he does is he takes all the theories we've studied, everything from how a culture forms in an organization to how to motivate employees. And then he writes three questions up beside them on the board. The first is, how can I find happiness in my relationships? The second is, how can I find happiness in my career? And the last one is, how can I stay out of jail? And that last one is a little bit tongue in cheek, but Clay had Jeff Skilling of Enron fame in his class. And apparently Skilling back at HBS was a good guy, but something sent him off the rails. And so the class is all about using the research, using the theories to answer the questions. And wildly popular class. And like I said, I was finding I was relying on this research an increasing amount to have these conversations. So when when he came back to work, we talked about it. I, I said it was something that I was really passionate about. And we explored whether there might be a possibility to, to turn this into a book. And away we went. Mm, it actually certainly helps me in the transition when I actually going to restart my career after a failure of my past startup. And mm. that, was how, that was how it came to me. In fact, one of the things that actually drew me to it was the way how the book is laid out. I guess every chapter of the book highlights a certain theory when it comes applies to the challenge in life. In fact, my wife has an MBA as well, and she has ex exactly interpreted it differently as well from reading the book. We were reading the mm. book at the same time. So what do you actually hope to for your readers to actually learn from just reading this book? Itself? Yeah, uh, great question. I think there are a few things that we had in mind when we set out to write it. One was that we wanted this to be broadly accessible. I think it's very easy for when you start getting into deep causal business research, it, it can be very dense. It can be very hard to access and people wouldn't understand it. And one of the things that we worked really hard to do was to take the research and really understand it and apply it in a way that people could internalize it. So this wasn't about 
We didn't want to make people feel like they were sitting through a business lecture that was really dry and boring. We wanted it to be interesting. I wanted my my mum to be able to read it. And so it needed to be accessible. And we wanted people to come away having a really solid understanding of all this great research that goes into this course that's so popular at Harvard Business School. And then the last thing that we really wanted to do was it wasn't so much to give people answers because I don't think there are any one-size-fits-all answers that you can give people when it comes to questions of like happiness in relationships or happiness in career. I mean, there are some certain things that run true across everything, but a big part of it is figuring out what's right for you in your individual circumstances. So what we wanted to do was equip people with the research, the theory in which they could then use that theory to tackle the three questions that we asked. And it was about prompting people. It was about asking them these questions and having them reflect on the questions with access to this research as a mechanism to try and find the answers for themselves. Is that the reason why the book is structured in a way where it always starts off with the summary of what that chapter or the theme that you want to get your reader to think about and then you talk a little bit about the business theory aspect and then subsequently you bring them back to the same problem that you want them to think about? Exactly. It, it, to, to just have the question would be to, again, it's, it's, it's not enough. Like the thesis of the book is that we can better find the answers to these questions if we have access to this fantastic research. And people say business research, like we, do you really want to run your life like a business? And to my answer, my answer to that is always no. But business is fundamentally about people it's a it's a it's a social science in that sense it's it's how people interact and you think about things like how a culture forms inside an organization or how to motivate employees these are questions about people and so we we wanted to equip people with this research and then as a result of that ask them the questions get them thinking and then have them use the research to answer the questions. So to give you an example, like thinking about thinking about family, and I mentioned the research on culture. Well, there's some fantastic research out there by an MIT professor by the name of Edgar Schein. He's like one of the foremost scholars in, in organizational culture. And there are all these definitions of culture that float about. People think it's whether you have foosball tables or or whether it's fun to work there or what the offices look like. But what Shine says is that culture is actually a shared mechanism for problem solving. And so the first time a group of people encounter a problem, they don't know how to solve it. And so they figure out a way of doing it. And when they get to a solution that's good enough, it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough. Then that's what they'll settle on. And if that's the solution that ends up working, doesn't again, doesn't need to work perfectly, just needs to work well enough, then the next time they encounter that problem, they're, they're likely to use that same solution. And that will keep happening until eventually a group of people encounter that problem and they don't even think about how to do it. This is just the way things are done. And that's how an organization's culture forms. It's like this shared mechanism for problem solving. What's interesting is because the research is sound, the way he's done it, the way he's approached it is solid. It's nested in nature. So it works at an organizational level. It works at a business unit level. It works at a team level. But it even works at a family level. The same causal mechanisms are at work. And then another example of the research 
working in, in, this, in this way that you don't initially expect, but taking it from the business world and applying it into the personal world is motivating employees. And there's one of the most famous HBR articles, One More Time, How Do You Motivate Employees? And it, it digs into the way in which employees find satisfaction and motivation at work. And, and it talks about two broad categories, the first of which is hygiene factors. And these are things that if they're present, uh, no, if they're absent, rather, they'll make you unhappy. But if they're present, uh, it won't necessarily mean you're happy. There'll just be an absence of dissatisfaction. So these are extrinsic things like how much you get paid, process and red tape, the status of an organization, like the reputation of it. Now, on the other hand, you have these intrinsic motivators or what the research terms motivators. And these are these are things that tend to be harder to measure. They are things like whether you think the work is meaningful, whether you're getting, going to get to shoulder responsibility, whether you're learning. And when these are absent, it doesn't make you unhappy. There's just an absence of that motivation. But when they're present, you feel really motivated. So whereas I used to think it was one long continuous spectrum with highly unmotivated to highly motivated, what the research says is there are actually two independent spectrums. They're the hygiene factors, which if present, so if you're making lots of money, if there's you're working for this organization with this fantastic reputation, it's not going to make you happy. It's just going to be an absence of unhappiness. And on the other hand, you have these intrinsic motivators, which if present will make you feel really motivated. But if they're not present, it's not going to make you unmotivated or unhappy. It's just going to be an absence of motivation. And so it's really interesting to think how these two spectrums can play independently. You can actually have, you can actually look at instances of people who are at work and they have all the motivators, but they're lacking hygiene factors. And these are examples like teachers who work with underprivileged kids. They don't get paid a lot. They don't, like the process can be really tiring. The work environment can be really bad, but they deeply, deeply believe in their work. And so they they're experience all, all the motivators, but there's an absence of hygiene factors. And so there's this dissonance that's pulling them in both directions. And and the same thing with like the military. Again, can be dangerous conditions, don't necessarily get paid very much, but a lot of people deeply believe in what they're doing. Understanding the research works in this way, you can actually take it and apply it to yourself in terms of figuring out how to find a career you love. You know, I used to say money doesn't matter, but I think like lots of people, I didn't really, really deep down believe that was true. But once I saw this research, I began to understand well, money is only useful up to a certain point. And once you've satisfied a certain level of income, like increasing that further isn't really going to be helpful. It's not going to make your make you love your job more. Instead, what you should look to do is try and increase the motivators. Make sure you're working on something where you can shoulder responsibility and learn more and something you deeply believe in. And so you need to satisfy these hygiene factors, but maximize the motivators. That's the part where it happens also in Asia, where people tend to associate that compensation is the most important factor. And when you dive deeply enough, you actually realize that it's actually not compensation. It's something else that actually... Mm getting them to do what they want. In fact, I think more more and more when people get exposed to all these kind of theories and ideas, I think particularly through maybe your book or other books, they're beginning to see that there's actually more towards, they're trying to move towards what they want to do in life than less. Yeah, I guess totally. also, Yeah, I guess one of the other interesting parts of the book was also like one thing about applying like strategy to sort of think about 
finding mm. the right role, making changes if life don't work out. I mean, sometimes my wife and I sometimes talk about it in terms of like our family is a startup. I mean, now it's a mature family after we married for three years, you know, then start taking decisions about financial and family matters, like buying a house and finding happiness. I think in the book, you talk a little bit about that. Would you want to elaborate a little bit? We pulled on some of the best research on the strategy creation process as well. And so again, I, I think people, ca- when they think of strategy, they think of something that tends to be very deliberate. A strategy is fixed. It knows exactly what it is that you should be doing. And that's what the research terms a deliberate strategy. Mm. But it's not always the best approach. It it depends on your circumstances. If you know exactly the things that are going to make you happy, if you found a career that satisfies your hygiene factors and is maximizing the motivators, then being very deliberate in nature is perfect. But there are lots of people out there who aren't in that set of circumstances and pursuing a deliberate strategy when you're not sure what's going to make you successful is not the right approach. Instead, you need to take a different approach. And that's what we term an emergent strategy. So this is where you are very open to possibilities. You open the aperture. Things that you're not expecting that are going to are going to come along and at that point that's where you stay open to things. You don't know what what it is that's going to work. You don't know what's going to get you to the outcome that you're seeking, so you stay much more open. And hopefully through that process as you begin to narrow down on things that you enjoy, things that are working, then you begin to close the aperture. It's like, okay, this is working. The only way I'm going to make sure it continues to work is if I double down on it, if I, if I increase my level of focus. And so this notion, of, this notion of strategy, the strategy process being a spectrum ranging all the way from emergent strategy where you're very open to things to a deliberate strategy where you're much more closed off. And it depends on the circumstances you're in. If you've figured out what works, then double down on a deliberate strategy. But if you're not sure, then it makes much more sense to be more emergent in nature. The, the best part of the book, which I, I really liked, is this whole topic about kids and outsourcing. I mean, at that point in time when I read the book, I haven't had a kid. Now that I have a kid, I actually appreciate that chapter a lot more. Is one, one of the things I felt taught is about looking after your children and not outsource their lives out. I, I guess my first question to that chapter is what is the thinking behind that chapter? Well, it was actually drawing a parallel between what we've observed in the business world and that we feel that there's a direct parallel between that and in the personal world. And one of the things that will often happen in the business world is in an attempt to optimize potentially for the wrong things, financial metrics, What often happens is that businesses outsource some of the most important functions that they have to suppliers and end them, end out hollowing themselves out. So they're, they're missing these, these strategic capabilities that are critical for their own success. And they do it on the basis of either focusing on the wrong things, like too focused on financial metrics or financial ratios. Or they, 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 you know, it's it's just making maybe maybe they're focused on the wrong time horizon. They're too short term focused as opposed to long term focused. And there's a direct parallel here with with raising kids and in a family. It's if you think that your job is to bring in as much income as possible, then it makes total sense to outsource the raising of kids. Like bring in nannies. You can go to work. You don't need to spend time with... Well, it's not that you don't need to spend time with your kids. It's that you can use your time 
given this this outcome variable of money's the most important thing, this is my job, you can spend more time doing that. It frees you up to do that. But I, I guess the thesis we present is that in the long run, the relationships you have with the people that are closest to you, your family and friends, are the most important thing in your life to happiness. And having someone else, bringing someone else in to help raise your kids so you can go off to work, you're actually outsourcing one of the most important functions of your role as a parent and you're not setting yourself up for long-term success in terms of being happy and developing those relations with your kids and, and setting things like their values because they pick up those things from the people that are around them. They face these decisions every day and the people that are going to be there to correct them or to teach them or to tell them why something is right or something is wrong, that's how they're going to get those values. And if you're not there with them, when they encounter those problems, they're going to be getting that feedback. They're going to be getting that they're going to be getting that counsel from somebody else. Mm. I like the I like the business case that you all use. I think it's Dell that actually outsourcing their core capabilities to mm. Asus, which is a Taiwanese company in Asia, and and how they subsequently lost their core capabilities as a whole. I have actually an interesting thought about this recently after re- rereading Titan by Ron Chernoff about Rockefeller. Mm. So I think everybody knows that if you were to take the net worth of Rockefeller and, and do a time value of money today, he's worth $850 billion. Without wow. internet, without, without uh, social media, he was able to command a big oil empire. Mm. But one of the things I saw read from that book was one of his habits. So apparently Rockefeller has a habit of spending time with his children. And he actually uses one day of the afternoon of the week to spend four hours and actually put uh, the bell telephone, the old <laughs> telecom phone in his house so that he only takes in important calls. Mm. And then when I read that, I was thinking about that chapter on the book about not outsourcing your children's time, not outsourcing your children's care to someone else and actually taking right. that time to be present right. with your children and making sure that they live the right values. And I see that reflected very interesting when I was watching documentaries about Rockefeller's life when his grandchildren talk about him as a person. Mm. So I, I thought, me, so sometimes it, it sort of made me think that all these things about, you know, you need to be in a startup, you need to work in 24-7, don't spend time with your family. You know, sometimes, I mean, the richest person in the world spends time with his family. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so I, I didn't know that story about yeah, yeah, Rockefeller. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing it. I, I There are many ways of approaching this, but I guess one of the ways that I've found most compelling in terms of how I've heard people describe it to get people to focus on the right things is think about life when you're further down the road. Think about life when you're, I mean, people have even said go so far as think about life when you're on your deathbed. And how many people do you think who are on their deathbed think, oh my gosh, I wish I'd spent more time at work? I don't, I don't think there are that many people who on reflection on their lives end up thinking exactly that. But I bet you, on the other hand, there are lots of people who have a lot of regrets about not spending more time with the people who mattered most to them. I mean, and and you see it, like you just described Rockefeller taking that time to spend with his family. There's the counterexample of of Steve Jobs, who's who's this generation's most successful entrepreneur, business leader, tech visionary, whatever you want to call it. I remember reading about how 
Jobs was asked about his biography. So he worked with, he allowed Walter Isaacson to come in and interview him to write a biography. And, and Jobs was asked, Steve, why are you doing this? Like, what's the reason that you're working on this biography? You're typically a very personal, personal individual. Why are you sharing all this information? And his answer went along something along the lines of, because I want my kids to know me. And so you've got one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world come staring staring his own mortality in the face and the conclusion he comes to is I need to be investing in things that will benefit my family. Like I I feel that I don't want to mischaracterize it, but it it seems to be coming from a place of I didn't spend enough time with these guys and this is an opportunity for them to get to know me. And I don't know, it's a really good reminder that for me at least, even if even if you were to make it to the penultimate, like someone who has as much impact as Jobs has, his reflection at the end is like, I need to be, I need, like it's this family thing. Like it feels like there's a sense of regret around not spending more time with his family. I guess there's a lot to think about. And I would actually urge a lot of my audience to read your book because I think different people will interpret different things from the book. Mm. And I think that's one thing that I did learn that you, you're not trying to, I, maybe I may be interpreting this wrongly. You're trying to get the reader to think about how their lives and make decisions for themselves and giving them the tools to do it and not actually I, giving them the answers. You're not misinterpreting it at all. That was exactly, that's exactly what we were trying to do. It's not, again, we come back to it. I, like whether it's in, in business or in life, there are very rarely easy answers to these difficult questions. And it's so much of it depends on your personal circumstances, how you're wired up, or if, if it's in an organizational sense, like the market that the organization is, is competing in. And rather than try and create this one-size-fits-all approach, it's much more about equipping people with the tools to make the decisions themselves, asking them the right questions. And then, yeah, there's hard work involved, but it's going to get you to a much better place than if you just follow some generic advice which someone offers you and says, just do this and you'll be happy. Like, rarely, rarely does that advice work. Mm. And uh, the last bit of it I'm going to ask you is, you co-host mm. a podcast with Ben Thompson of Stratagery. Yes. yes. So yes. how do you end up doing this media project? Yeah, it was, it, again, it was somewhat unexpected. So Ben and I had engaged a little bit over Twitter. I've always been a fan of his his writing, his work. He's a super smart guy. And he was visiting Palo Alto and we were discussing discussing one of his articles in particular around disruption theory. And we were having this really interesting discussion about it. And we just realized that there there was not that much out there in terms of podcast material talking about this kind of thing, the big picture impact of business, technology, society, where these topics all intersect. Mm-hmm. And we've floated the idea of why, why don't we do a podcast on it? And literally, as we were walking back to his car, I was like on Amazon ordering a microphone. And then a couple of weeks later, we started the first one and we've just kept going. And last night recorded our 54th episode, I think. Um, and it's yeah. just yeah, it's yeah. just a pleasure to, I won't speak for him, but it's just a pleasure <laughs> for me to jump on the, the phone with him every week and have one of these conversations about something really interesting or a couple of things that are happening that are really interesting in the tech world or the business world. Or, or sometimes we stray into the world of personal development, talking about topics that, that might sound closer to how you measure your life. So 
yeah, it's just been a, a fantastic project to, to be involved in. And again, it just kind of, it wasn't a deliberate thing. It just kind of happened because the aperture was open and a very cool opportunity emerged. I like the part that there's always a devil's advocate view. I, I know that you play the devil's advocate view sometimes in mm-hmm. the discussion. I mean, you all talk a lot about even like things like in the digital media industry. Is the podcast mainly on thinking about the broader implications to how technologies are disrupting or being disrupted? Or is it that also their current strategy that might lead to interesting outcomes, not, not necessarily good or bad for the future? Both. I mean, we'll zoom in and out depending on what's happening and what we're interested in talking about. But we'll range from talking about, we'll go into depth on a specific company or the, 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 competitive, the competitive landscape amongst a series of companies all the way to zooming out to the societal implications of the rise of platforms, for example. So more and more people are getting their news or giving their attention to platforms like Facebook. And everything that's presented to you on Facebook is curated algorithmically. Mm. What does that mean that you're, what you're seeing is being determined by an algorithm? Like is that, what are the, what are the societal implications? Or Amazon got in a fight with a book publisher and deprioritized the results, the book results. When someone searched Amazon for books from that book publisher, Amazon would deprioritize the results while that while that fight was happening. Or recently, Apple pulled an app that reported on drone strike information. So people that were being killed by drone strikes, Apple pulled the app that was reporting on that for objectionable content. Like technology is having a broader and broader impact on society. And so we'll go all the way from diving into Google's business model or Apple's business model or advertising and the future of publishing all the way up to these these broader societal questions. And it, it, it can range from very zoomed in to much more zoomed out. In the past few years, actually, the idea of disruption is actually getting a lot of focus in Asia. I think a lot of local companies in different parts of Asia are trying to fight that disruption. Sometimes I think it, the, the, this, there's this question that's always on my mind, listening to both of you talking about disruption theory. When you have the sort of low-end disruption, the game plan is actually to try to work on the price and try to figure out to be more cost-effective. What about like the new market disruption? So I kind of, so, I, I don't know whether you have any advice and thoughts on in, in with your also with your exposure to Asia, how would a company that went from a low cost disruption into what I call the new market disruption? I, I guess what's the evolution that it needs to go for that? Because I I can see that there's going to be a lot of these companies that has to fight things like Uber. I mean Uber is everywhere now, and they are they have their own disruptors, which is the clones. If you take apparently the combined net worth of all the Uber clones is actually larger than Uber. I think seven billion in total. And they're all funded by SoftBank for some reason. So I just wanted to just tease your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, again, I I want to avoid slipping too much into trying to give easy answers mm, yeah, because there is there is a context dependent. Mm. But it it really does depend on it does depend on the job that you're trying to do for your consumers. So one of the critical th- 
one of the critical theories in understanding disruption theory is job to be done. And this idea that consumers don't buy products or services, but rather they have a job that they need doing in their lives and they hire a product or service. And low-end disruption is when the product or service already exists, but it's too expensive for broad access. And someone comes along and introduces something that... Uh, to the incumbents looks like a toy, but in reality is, is fantastic for all these non-consumers because they have access to something that they didn't have access to before. New market is, is much more about when technology enables companies to create a market that previously didn't exist. And so it really does become context dependent, context specific about what we're talking about. Um, but generally, I think the trick the trick with all of these things is, yeah, you need to think about the business model, but the starting point is the customer and satisfying customer need. Where are you able to see something that a broad population would love a product or service, but they don't have access to? And regardless of what you think about disruption, if you start there, you're probably onto something. I like the way you talk about the jobs to be done framework yes. in understanding disruption. So it kind of made me just, and, and you linked it to, Disruption theory very clearly on, uh -huh. on that. So one of the things that sort of made me think about what you just said is that in Asia, because we are yes. uh, we are actually moving behind the Western markets, the US market. But I think there are some things that we're actually also disrupting the US market. For example, WeChat is disrupting the messenger applications, mm. definitely. If the jobs to be done within a developing nation requires that particular solution, sometimes it doesn't need to be disrupted because they are not, because it's not the jobs to be done for that market itself. So I was just yeah. wondering whether I'm, I'm right about thinking in that direction. Yeah, I, I would say it depends. I would say that, believe it or not, that most of the jobs across cultures are actually pretty similar. Like, mm -hmm. I think there are a bunch of, like, the, the messenger market, for example, it's based on a need to communicate. It's based on a need to be close to people. The job is actually very similar. Now, there are cultural aspects that change various things, whether people want to be able to buy everything or do everything from one app versus maybe some cultures are much, they, they like the idea of segmenting things off or not having everything in one place. I think there are cultural aspects, but I would say actually that surprisingly enough that jobs across cultures are remarkably consistent. There will, there will always be some variation and there will be some differing approaches to how best to do it. But, but the fundamental jobs, it's like they're basic human, they're basic human things, whether it's the need to communicate, some of these, some of the research on motivation. Like, I, I think it's actually surprisingly similar. Oh yeah. That's, so that's, that's, that's what I was trying to get to so I, I guess there's a lot that we can talk about disruption theory as well and i would definitely urge my listeners to definitely listen to the exponent podcast because i think you and ben talk about it a lot more so my last question james how do my audience find you oh absolutely so i'm on twitter uh, James Allworth, J-A-M-E-S-A-L-L-W-O-R-T-H, all one word. I think you can provide a link. And then the other, the other thing, I have a, a small email newsletter that I publish when I put something up. And then obviously you talked about the Exponent podcast, which is something that we do every week. And so that's on the iTunes store. If you search for Exponent, E-X-P, O-N-E-N-T. And my email newsletter is on my website, which is jamesallworth.com. 
Mm. I'll put a link to that. Yeah, and you can find me at bleongcwr at bernardleong.com. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. Please leave a ratings, five star to one star of feedback as usual. Always welcome. So, James, once again, it's been great discussing these really deep topics with you today. Yeah, and I look forward to listening to your podcast too. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. I've really enjoyed it.